Modern hymnist Charles Weigel once visited Pasadena to go to a Bible conference. And before the conference, he spent some time walking through one of Pasadena's famous rose gardens when the full fragrance of the flowers was filling the air. Later in the day, he arrived at the hotel where the Bible conference was to be had. And he took a seat, and the man next to him said, Oh, I see you've been touring our, our lovely gardens. I can smell the, the pleasing aroma off your clothes. And that, that little story, which is true, it's a perfect illustration of the Christian walk, where you are walking so closely with God that the aroma of him is just on you, and it follows you, and people can tell you've been walking with the Lord. And it draws them to the Lord. Weigel later wrote of this incident, quote, My prayer is that I may always walk so closely with the Lord that the fragrance of his grace will pervade my being. I want the world to know by my words, actions, and songs that I have been with Jesus, end quote. And such is the Christian life. We offer up our lives to God as a pleasing aroma, and through this God draws others to himself. When the world sees love, joy, and peace in the lives of Christians, some are confounded by it, but others are attracted to it. Their interest in Christianity is piqued. They're eventually drawn to Christianity's transforming Savior. In the Old Testament, the entire nation of Israel had this function to live as lights among the world. And now that function is passed to the church. We are the ones to, to witness of his name, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling that the world might come to know him. And speaking of, the Christian life, as you know, is often described as a walk. It's a walk with God, it's a walk toward God. But you also know this walk can't even begin unless a person is first transformed. Before salvation, we all had a walk. The Bible describes it this way, Ephesians 2.1, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. See, before salvation, we all walked in the ways of the world. But God intervenes and saves all those who call on the name of his son. And when that happens, some changes take place. When you come to believe in Christ, God changes you. Your status changes. You're no longer spiritually dead, but alive. You're no longer a slave to sin, but to righteousness. No longer under God's wrath, but under his love. God even goes so far as to justify you, which means to to count you not guilty of all your sin, And he actually declares you to be perfectly righteous. Did you know that? At salvation, when he justifies you, he declares you to be righteous in Christ. But at the same time, that being true, we also know there's this disconnect. Because although we may be declared perfectly righteous at salvation, we sure don't always live like we're perfectly righteous. Although we are dead to sin and alive to God, in Christ, we often live like the opposite is true. So you might wonder why. Why why this disconnect? The answer is that although our salvation is granted and secured in Christ, it's not yet fully applied. For the time being, we still have our sin natures. What this means is even though our position has been perfected before God, that our daily practice has not. And so, yes, the true believer will grow in practical righteousness, but it's only when we die and our salvation is fully applied, we are glorified, Scripture would call it, that that our, our practice will match our position. We will be truly perfect in Christ. Until that day, day, though, when we are glorified, as long as we're we're still on earth, 
God wants us to, to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We have this high calling, calling of Christ, calling of God's own righteousness. And although we're not glorified yet, we're not in heaven yet, he wants us to, to live like that now. That's what the Christian life is all about. That, that's the reason God adopted you. And this is why all, all too often we see this same call repeated in Scripture. For believers, you are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You've been called to new life in Christ, so live like you're new. If you will, turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to start there real quick. Ephesians 4. I'm going to show you how this refrain is repeated all throughout the New Testament. To some, I'm sure it's familiar. You know, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul describes our calling, our high calling. You've been predestined by God. You've been made alive by God. You've been saved by God all through the work of His Son, sealed by the Spirit. That's your calling. And because of these rich realities, you are now to live like one who has been so called. And so in the last three chapters, Paul explains what the conduct of one who has been so called is to look like. You have calling, you have conduct. Chapters 1 through 3, the calling, 4 through 6, the conduct. And the hinge between our calling in Christ and our conduct is chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Which, with which you've been called. There's no higher calling than to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore there's no higher standard of conduct. And the rest of Ephesians, Paul goes on to detail what that Christian conduct looks like. What does it mean to follow Christ? Well, what does that walk look like? And he explains a lot. You can look, for example, at chapter 4, verse 17. He says later, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What he reminds us here is that positionally, we've already put off the old self in Christ and put on the new self. We have been born again and made new. But now, uh, on earth, our life now, it's all about living like that's true. Live like you are new. This is the essence of Christian sanctification. Ephesians isn't the only place where we find this exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, to, to live like you're new. For example, Colossians 1, verse 9, Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, every other world religion gets it backwards. In one way or another, they believe that to get into heaven, you've got to do good works. That's how you become righteous, right? That's how you earn righteousness. Well, that's wrong. Good works don't make you righteous. They, they can't save you. First off, your, your good deeds, they don't do anything to pay for the sins you've already committed. So you still have a huge sin problem. And secondly, your good deeds don't even measure up to God's standard, which is perfect righteousness. And so it's Christianity alone that teaches that God must save and transform people simply by grace. There's no other way they can stand before him, not by merit, not by deed, simply by grace, which is this unearned favor. And then when God does save someone and transforms them, then what happens? Well, then their life bursts forth with fruit, with good deeds. And so we can say righteous living, it is the fruit, not the root of salvation. You might recall back in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. And then he, can, he keeps going, verse 10, and says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And there's that word walk again. You see, God's will has always been that his children would walk in his ways. They would walk with him. His ways are best. But it's only by his saving grace that we are enabled to do so. And so thereafter, we find verses like Colossians 2.6, which says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Or 1 Thessalonians 2.12 Again, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I mean, think about that calling. You've been called into God's own kingdom and glory. But contrary to perhaps popular belief, you can't come as you are. You have to be transformed. You have to be changed. And God positionally begins this work at salvation and he will fulfill it when the kingdom comes. This is an amazing privilege. This is our high calling. And it demands that we walk in a manner worthy of that calling. King Henry V, before he was king, while he was still prince, lived a life of immorality and wickedness and debauchery, just living for pleasure. But then when the king died and, and he became the new king, he left all that behind. He changed. He changed his ways because he sensed that the gravity of the crown placed on his head. And he went on to become one of England's noblest kings. And for Christians, it should be the exact same way, even more so. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5:17. Now, I know that for many of you, this, this extended introduction, it, it's a simple reminder for things you already know. You've heard this before. You know, you know this stuff. But I would still urge you not to take such a reminder for granted. 
Because God himself has seen fit to include such a reminder very often in Scripture. Like we've already read, we have this this calling many, many times to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And it just so happens we have yet another in our passage for this morning. So with that being said, now you can finally turn over to Philippians chapter 1, our text for this morning. Philippians chapter 1. Here we have yet another passage where God directs believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Philippians 1, and picking up where we left off last time, it all begins now in verse 27, where he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here we see that same basic command, exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It's a little different, though, you might notice. The verb Paul uses in Philippians, he says, conduct yourselves. That's actually unique. Earlier in in Ephesians, in Colossians, in 1 Thessalonians, he used the the literal word for walk, parapeteo, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But here only, he uses another verb. It literally means to live as a citizen, to take an active role as a member of the state. Paul is basically telling the the Philippians, live as good citizens. Instead of walk a man worthy of your calling, he says live as good citizens, to conduct yourselves as good citizens. Now, the, the thrust is the same, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It's the same basic message. But right off the bat, why do you think Paul chooses that this special unique verb just for the Philippians? He doesn't do this with the Ephesians or the Colossians, the Thessalonians. Only here... He puts it this way. Why do you think that is? Well, you might recall that Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant that every single one of them were basically Roman citizens. And they were very proud of this fact. They had adopted Roman law, Roman customs, Roman dress, Roman architecture, Roman names. It was a very Roman city. Add a little bit more, most of them, well, maybe not most, but a good number of them were retired Roman army Roman army veterans. So in all, they cherished their Roman citizenship and they lived it out. What Paul is telling them is basically all the more so, they should cherish their heavenly citizenship and live that out too because that runs far deeper than their pride for Rome. Paul is basically tailoring the same message just for them. They are to live as good citizens, not of Rome, but of heaven, most of all. He actually will pick up on that theme later in chapter 3, if you want to just preview. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. He says to them later, chapter 3, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state, into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. All believers are, in fact, citizens of heaven. There in chapter 3, he's talking about the destination, the end of the line. We eagerly wait being in heaven with the Lord 
That's what we're looking forward to. And what will the Lord do when he comes, when that day comes? It says he will transform our bodies. That's what we were talking about earlier. That's glorification. That's the, the finality of our salvation. When our redemption is fully applied. That's when we are made perfect, not only just in our position, but now also in our, our practice. When Christ comes, when the kingdom comes, when we go to him, our salvation is made complete. That's what we're ultimately looking forward to, right? At the end of the line. Here's the kicker, though. What he's teaching is, even though that hasn't come yet, we are heavenly citizens right now. We're, we're, we're enrolled. We're there now, even though we're, we're not. But God's grace, by God's grace, rather, he's already made us members of that realm. We've got our passports. We've got our place. It's just a matter of time. But we are heavenly citizens right now. That's our, actually our true home. It's no wonder Peter calls us aliens and strangers on this earth, exiles, because this is not our home any longer. We're living for, for that home. And this, if you understand this, this is the fundamental reason we are called to live as heavenly citizens right now, because, because we are. And so back to Philippians 1, this is a lesson that applies not just to these Philippians in regards to their Roman citizenship. This lesson applies to, to all believers from all nations who follow Christ. For in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're a citizen of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And that citizenship surpasses any other. And right now we are to live as good citizens of that kingdom. We are to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, who's the king of that kingdom. It's what the Christian life here on earth is all about. This is the call of Paul to the Philippians. And we also find the call of God to all believers, all nations, all ages, to walk in a manner worthy of the king of that kingdom. So in all this, an extended introduction, if you're tracking with me, the next question is, what? What does this look like? If that's true, if that's our mission, if that's our commission to, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling here on earth after redemption. Okay, well, what does that really look like? What does it look like to live as a heavenly citizen? I mean, I'm sure you know what it means to live as a good citizen of the United States of America. But what does it really mean or look like to live as a good citizen of, of heaven? Well, it is to this that Paul now turns in the rest of verses 27 and 28. So far in Philippians 1, Paul has told us a lot about himself, his personal circumstances, that of other Christians in Rome. But now, it's only now in verse 27 that he finally addresses the Philippians. He finally sets his sights on them. And he begins with a very familiar exhortation, although tailored just for them, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says that to almost every people he talks to, walk in a manner worthy of, of your calling. But he says more, for just as citizenship comes with rights and privileges, it also comes with duty and responsibilities and expectations. And so in the rest of verses 27 and 28, we find that Paul highlights some of what is expected of every Christian citizen. This is what citizens of heaven should look like. This is a sampling 
of, of how they are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Specifically, Paul highlights three attitudes that should characterize Christian citizenship. Three attitudes that should characterize Christian citizenship. And they're worth taking a closer look at. These attitudes, if you know Christ, if you're a citizen of heaven, they should be yours and increasing as you grow in walking in a manner worthy of Christ yourself. So with the rest of our time, we're going to examine these three attitudes that should be ours as citizens of heaven right now. So let's do that. Number one, tenacity. The first attitude, tenacity toward the faith, tenacity. Looking at verse 27, Philippians 1:27, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. That I will hear that you're standing firm. Tenacity is really the perfect word to describe what Paul hopes to find in them here. It means to hold fast to persist, to not easily be pulled apart. I have these magnets at home. They're called rare earth magnets. They're not your simple refrigerator magnet. They're very strong. And if if they ever cling together, if you ever let them go and they snap together, it's almost impossible to pull them apart. You've got to wedge something in and really just slowly pry them apart. And if your grip slips just for a millisecond, they snap back together and, and you start all over. But that's tenacity. That, that's a picture of, of tenacity. You could say they are tenaciously clinging to one another. Tenacity speaks of persistence, digging in, not giving up. In the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese army, nowhere near as powerful as the American army. They didn't even have an air force. But they were tenacious. They, they dug in, they persisted in the fight, and they basically persevered. And when it comes to the Christian faith and your battle against sin, you are to be just as tenacious in this, in this race, in this struggle, in this fight. This is the first attitude that should describe a Christian citizen, tenacious. Again, verse 27, he says, So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm. Again, the word carries an idea of steadfastness. It was actually used to describe the unflinching courage of a soldier who stood his ground, no matter the cost, who's just going to stand his ground. And when it comes to the faith, that's what God wants of us, to stand firm, to stand our ground. Second Thessalonians 2, 14 and 15 reads, It was for salvation that he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren... Stand firm. So then, stand firm. In every age, the true church has been under constant assault. The spiritual warfare exists where different worldviews come into conflict with the truth of God. Sometimes the conflict is intellectual. Sometimes it's doctrinal. Sometimes moral. Sometimes cultural. But the assault against our beliefs is never ending. And it never will end until Christ comes. The question is, how will you respond to such a conflict? I think we all know some who have not stood firm. 
they have not tenaciously clung to the gospel, to the, to the faith. And when that conflict came, they, they let go. They gave up, they gave in, they fell away. But the call of the true disciple is to stand firm, rooted and grounded in the truth, clinging to Christ no matter the cost, no matter what. Something people often forget is that the church is engaged in this ongoing spiritual war in this age. That's why we see all these passages telling us to be on the alert, to stand firm. For example, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And speaking of Philippi, Philippi was a good church. They were a faithful church. They were, they were going strong. But Paul is exhorting them here that they have to keep that up. They have to do that until the end. You can't stop short. You probably heard it. Football players, they often talk in competition. You know, we, we've got to compete the full four quarters. You've got to give it your all. All four quarters. It's great if you have a team that gives it their all the first half, but it's all for naught if they completely give up during the second half. They, they've lost everything. Uh, persistence is needed where you're giving your full effort until the very end. And that is how the Christian life is to be. You can't just stop halfway. You lose everything. You must persist tenaciously until the end. Christians in Scripture are at times described as soldiers of Christ, living militant lives at war with a culture that hates us and hates our Lord. Our mission is not to hate others. We are even to love our enemies. But our mission is to stand firm. Our commission is to stand firm for the faith, to hold our ground until Christ comes, despite all these assaults. That's the call of the citizen soldier of Christ, to tenaciously stand your ground. Paul uses another word to describe the Christian's tenacious clinging to the faith. Again, verse 27. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. And then he says, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That that word striving together, it, it means to struggle, to toil. He wants to see them toiling for the gospel, holding on. There's work to be done, and Christian citizenship requires struggle. So if you're not struggling, if you're not engaged in a struggle for the faith, you may not even be a citizen. You know, as a side note, this is why the Bible mentions several times an abundance of wealth. It's one of the worst things that can happen to a believer. Not that it's wrong to be rich, but for all too many, it causes them to indulge in luxury and ease and comfort. And they forget that they're in a life and death struggle for the faith. Not only are they to hold the front lines there to advance them, but many people, rich and poor, have fallen asleep at the post. The comforts of this world have distracted them from striving, from standing firm. They're less concerned with the spread of the gospel and more concerned with worldly affairs. This is why Paul says over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he says to them, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he says, no soldier in active service 
entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. We're not saying it's wrong to, as Christians, enjoy some of life's pleasures. It's not a sin to go to a movie, to go on vacation. But you can't get entangled or distracted, preoccupied, carried away by these other pursuits. Remember, just because you go on vacation doesn't mean your enemy is on vacation. The struggle is still there. The end goal of the American dream to, to retire and live a perpetual vacation, it just doesn't jive with being a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Again, not wrong to enjoy what the world has to offer, but we cannot lose this militant mindset in our spiritual struggle. We've got to strive to follow him tenaciously. How long does this struggle persist? Well, only your whole life. Notice earlier in verse 27, he says, Hey, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you're standing firm and striving together. Whether he gets out of jail and sees them or not, it doesn't matter. His personal presence has no bearing on whether or not they should stand firm. They are to stand firm regardless. Their entire lives, and then the next generation, and the next, and the next, until Christ comes. In every season of their lives, at all times, they should be standing firm and striving together, tenaciously clinging to the faith. This is a reminder for us as well, all the more needed as the battle for truth only intensifies in our age, right? The battle, it's not easy. It's why it's called a struggle. But you need to engage yourself in that struggle. Don't get distracted. Don't get carried away. And furthermore, on the positive side, you need to set your sights daily on the Lord, on heaven, on your heavenly citizenship. You need to keep heavenly minded because you know and I know it's very easy in our world to get distracted to get carried away by other things where we're just, you know, going through the motions or living life, not engaged in this striving. You have to remember, you're not a civilian. You're a soldier of the Lord Jesus. If you're a citizen, you're a soldier. And you fight for him by standing firm in the faith. It's been said that a distracted soldier is a dead soldier. I think that's true spiritually as well. So have you become distracted, entangled by the worries of the world, the pleasures of the world? Now, like you're not called to totally disengage and live in a monastery, but you are called to passionately and tenaciously follow Christ, to live for Christ. So maybe it's time for you to, I don't know, ditch some hobbies or some of the fluff that has captured so much of your time and energy and heart and devote more of yourself to him. Whatever the case, wherever you might be, first you must stand firm for the gospel as a good citizen of heaven. And you must do so tenaciously. This is the first attitude that should characterize Christian citizenship. Tenacity. A second attitude is mentioned. Number two, unity. Paul goes on. Speaking of the description of a citizen of heaven, how we are to live, first, tenacity, second, unity. Look again at verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, 
I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Tenacity isn't the only attitude you need. Paul knows that an individual Christian can't hold the front lines alone. He or she will be overwhelmed by the enemy sooner or later. So unity is needed. Christianity was never meant to be done alone. If a distracted soldier is a dead soldier, so is a lone soldier. Christianity is not a solo sport. You were meant to do it with others. So he urges them to unity. A united front is the best strategy for victory. As you know, most of the herbivores in the African savanna, they're pack animals. They, they, they go around in a group. Why do you think that is? Well, there is safety in numbers from all the carnivores of the savanna. And the real danger comes when they get separated from the pack. When you're all by yourself, that's when you're, you're easy pickings. And it's very much true for Christians as well, who get separated from, from the church. They're, they're on their own. They're an island. Easy pickings. Again, near the end of verse 27, he wants to see them standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see that? One spirit, one mind, striving, not alone, striving together for the gospel. You can see he's stressing the extreme importance for Christians to to live together and to fight together. You need to tenaciously cling to the faith, but your strength is limited. You need others to help you, and you need to help them work together to, to stand firm. Again, of all the churches we hear about in the New Testament, the Philippian church, they're up there. They're one of the best. They're faithful. They're mature. They're loving. But even so, as is indicative in this letter, they had some chinks in their armor, one of them being in the area of unity. Since we're all still sinners and sin divides people, we'll never achieve perfect unity here on earth. That awaits the kingdom. But another part of living as a heavenly citizen right now is striving for unity. I mean, don't you think we'll have in heaven with Christ perfect unity? You sure will. And he wants us striving for that right now. In fact, just to keep you more familiar with Philippians, look over at chapter 4. Flip the Flip the page of Philippians chapter 4. Short letter, so this is near the end. Chapter 4, verse 1, look what he says. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It's interesting how similar that passage is, the ending basically, to our passage. In concluding the letter, he reminds them once again to do what? To stand firm. That's how he starts, how he ends, his exhortation to the Philippians to stand firm. But that can never be achieved if there's strife, if there's division in the ranks. And there was some strife in Philippi, at least between two women. So much so, he calls them out. 
These women have shared in the struggle for the gospel. But their, their conflict is undermining that struggle for the gospel. Like Jesus himself said, any house divided among itself will fall. And so he wants them to stand firm, be tenacious, but you've got to be unified too. And so ask yourself, are you divided? Like these two women, does some strife exist in your life? between you and and someone else, maybe even someone in this room. If so, you need to put it away. Forgive one another of any offenses. Just as your Father in heaven has forgiven you, forgive, cover your differences in love, and join together in the struggle for faith. Back to Philippians 1.27. Notice another phrase Paul uses to stress the importance of unity. He wants to see them standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And then he says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We already looked at that word striving. But again, it's not striving alone. It's striving together. And actually, that's one word in the Greek. Striving together, it's just, that's the word. This word means to struggle for the faith, but not alone. Never alone. There's no understanding of the struggle alone in Scripture. We need God, we need the Spirit, we need the church. We must strive together. With this word, actually, Paul switches from battle imagery to athletic imagery. word was used in an athletic sense of a team working as a team, not as individuals, where each team member is not concerned about himself, but about the team. And that's how teams win, you know, they, they worry about the team. It's still a familiar concept to us. I think you could probably go with basketball here. I think you see this happen a lot if you know anything about basketball. So many teams, that they get close to greatness, winning that championship, but then they fall apart because they're composed of, of individuals who care about personal glory, not the team. And so they, they just want all the points for themselves. But then you get a team of less talented players who's working together, and they'll win every time. It's only when all the players put aside their ego and focus on the team that they will that they'll win. And this is what Paul is driving at here. It's, it's not a lot different in the church. We have to strive together without separation, without conflict. The battle's hard enough. We don't need a battle inside as well. We're striving for the faith of the gospel, to see God's truth go out into all the world to defend it, to uphold it, to live it, to stand firm in it. And that can only be accomplished if the church strives together. And for that, we need unity. Paul knows that unity is a special key that the church has to possess if it is to thrive and survive and push forward the gospel. I'm sure you remember Benjamin Franklin's drawing of a snake cut up into pieces with the caption under saying, Join or Die. This is a message to the original American colonies. His point is very clear that if the 13 colonies, if they only humbled themselves, put aside their differences, and came together, they could actually win. And that's how this tiny colonial army, army defeated the massive British army by, by joining together. And the church is in a similar struggle against sin, against Satan, against even our own flesh. And the key to victory is is unity, large part, unity. And here we have a lesson for our, even the church at large. 
We all need allies. And sadly, I think we know our American individualism often gets into the church. And so we find that many local churches, even our own, can be an island at times. We are very much divided from other local churches. We have differences in doctrine or practice, so we don't mingle with that group or that group. But there really has to be some balance. Although we may have legitimate differences from other other local churches, you have to just remember, if they have the same gospel and the same Lord and the same faith, though we may differ on, on secondary things, you have to remember, they're, they're actually not the enemy. We're on the same team. We're together for the gospel. So that being said, I hope you find yourself praying for the other churches in our area, extending grace to those who differ on those secondary matters, not the primary, but the secondary, and unifying in the spread of the gospel because as the culture war is already upon us, we need allies. And the allies are the true church, and that is defined by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. To stand firm, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, unity is required. We need tenacity, we need unity. And we can finish now with a third attitude Paul mentions as needing to be belonged by Christian citizens. It is intrepidity. The word intrepid, intrepidity. Okay, if you want if you want a parallel outline, if not, just put fearless. Okay, if you forget what intrepid means, just put fearless. But if you want to keep the parallel going, intrepidity towards opponents, towards opponents. Look again at verse 28. He wants them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. Just to finish this short passage, Paul encourages them and us to be intrepid toward those who are in opposition. And like I said before, to be intrepid means basically to be fearless. And in this case, he's talking about opponents toward those who are opposing them. They need to be fearless. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents. They're not to be frightened. They're not to be scared off, intimidated by those who oppose the faith. Talking about a certain degree of courage here. The word it actually was of alarmed. It was used of horses that were easily startled by some object and they would throw their rider. And such horses, they're not fit for battle. You don't take a a scared horse into battle. Our other horses, though, they're war horses. In the ancient world especially, these are fierce creatures who a, a warrior would use to charge into battle, and they had no regard for swords or shields or spears or arrows. God himself brags on the horse, which he created. It's actually it's why it's my favorite animal. But over in Job 39, God brags on the mighty horse. He says, Job 39:22, He laughs at fear and is not dismayed, and he does not turn back from the sword. If only that described Christians and not just horses in regards to our opponents. But all too often we're we're like the timid horse. We run scared. We're spooked at the sign of battle. When the war drums play, we, we turn away. We fear what our opponents might do to us. But instead, God calls us as, as heavenly citizens. And surely when we're there, we have nothing to fear, right? He calls us to right now live fearless lives, intrepid toward our opponents.
And so again, we ask, does that, does that sound like you? Would you ever describe yourself as courageous and fearless, especially when it comes to opponents of the faith? Now pretend maybe it's Christmas, you've gathered with your, your unbelieving family members. For whatever reason, they start tearing into the Christian faith and maligning it. And then they turn to you and say, you believe all this stuff, right? Would you be like Peter before the, the slave girl and, and deny your master? Or would you stand up for the faith? Would you be intrepid, bold, fearless, and even witness to them? Or would you shrink away to save your skin? Luke 12:4, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. I mean, you know we are to fear not man, but God. Now, the amazing news for us is that because of Christ's sacrifice, we don't have to dread God or even hell any longer. We've been delivered. We've been secured. But that should actually only move us to greater fearlessness because now that we're redeemed, we're safe in the arms of God. We're, we're heavenly citizens. There really is nothing our opponents can meaningfully do to us. Now, speaking of, who are these opponents that he mentions in verse 28? Well, he doesn't specify in the near context. Likely, it included some unbelieving Gentiles who are persecuting these new, weird Christian people. Also likely were some Judaizers in the mix. He'll talk about them later in chapter 3. Those were Jewish Christians who had a false gospel. We'll see them later. But regardless of who these opponents are, the Philippians are not to be alarmed. Look, opposition to the truth, it will always come in many shapes and sizes from many places. But regardless, citizens of the kingdom must not shrink back or get scared or or turn away. The Philippians, we're going to learn, especially next week, they had some strong reasons to be afraid. Beatings, imprisonments, execution. Many others have lesser reasons to be afraid. Mockery, ridicule, persecution. But whatever the case, Paul reminds them not to be intimidated so as to give up the struggle. Don't let them get to you. Greater is he who is with you and in you than he who's in the world. They need to press on. If God is is with them, I mean, who can really stand against them? The same goes for us. And actually, he even tells them that the very fact that they're engaged in this struggle and even suffering for the struggle, that's a sign of God's favor. Again, one more time, verse 28. He says to them, to be in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. Why were the Philippians being persecuted? It was for Christ, for faith in Christ and the gospel. But the very fact that they were suffering for Christ was a sign from God of their genuine salvation because false believers, they don't suffer for the gospel for very long. Remember what Jesus taught? The seed sown in the rocky places immediately shoots up with joy because the word has received. But when affliction or persecution arises on behalf of the word, immediately he falls away. That's the sign of a false believer. The true believer, however, will suffer that same affliction 
and persecution, but endure while trusting God to deliver and to judge. And God will. He will judge. He will set all things right. You just stand firm and do so with others and do so fearlessly. With this knowledge and this assurance and hope, you are simply to be steadfast, united, and intrepid, fearless. Again, that's how we're going to be in heaven, right? I mean, the church in heaven will be unmovable. The church in heaven will be one. The church in heaven will be without fear. And all of this, God wants us to, to live right now. These are three attitudes that should characterize your Christian citizenship. Toward the gospel, tenacity, you must stand firm for the truth and strive to see it advance in the world. Toward believers, unity, you have to put aside strife and with humility pursue the gospel together. And toward opponents, intrepidity, you must not be intimidated or shrink back when opposed, but with courage endure. And so now again we'll ask, are these three marks of citizenship yours? This is how God, who's adopted you into his kingdom, wants you to live. And this is how we as his children want to live to please our king. So I pray that you grow and pursue these attitudes and that they increase in your life. Christian life, it is a struggle. And I'm sure many of you, you felt the weight of that struggle at times. And so we wonder, you know, can we ever be tenacious enough or unified enough or intrepid enough? And the answer is no. Even still, we fall short. Even after salvation, we fall short. And so even for all of this, even for for running the race and fighting the fight, we still need God's grace to strengthen us, to embolden us. You're not saved on your own. You're not sanctified on your own. So remind yourself to, to not strive on your own, but to do so by God's grace. The good news is God's grace is sufficient for you, and he's already given you that grace. He will grow you. He will conform you. Just entrust yourself to him. I mean, already, roughly 2,000 years ago, he sent his son Christ to die on the cross for you to pay for your sins, to purchase your forgiveness, rising from the dead, to secure your salvation. If God went to such great extents to save you, do you think he's going to abandon you now? So in everything that you do, even in trying to live for him, be sure to look upon him for grace and for help. Christ is our hope. Christ is our help. So you just keep walking in a manner worthy of your calling, of him who makes us worthy. And that's really what it's all about. We're not worthy of God. We're not worthy of heaven. We're not worthy of salvation. But Jesus died for us anyway to make us worthy. So join with the church now to offer up the sacrifice of your life a life that has been made worthy by Christ. And resolve yourself to live in such a way that brings honor to the king of the kingdom that we will inherit to walk in a manner worthy of Christ while eagerly waiting for the Savior to come. And when he comes, he will make us fully like himself. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we... 
we bow before you this morning, thanking you and, and praising you for being our great God in heaven, in whom we can trust. Lord, for we know that when you are with us, when you are for us, none can stand against, none can oppose. Who can ward off your hand or pluck us from your hand? None, Lord. Yet you call us to, to keep ourselves in the faith, to stand firm. And Lord, this we must do. We, we trust you to preserve, yet we must persevere. And so we take this calling on upon, our, upon ourselves as well, Lord. We must stand firm tenaciously in the faith. We have got to fight to believe, fight against assault, fight against doubt, fight against attacks coming from the world around us. And they still come. Yet, Lord, we know we cannot do this alone. We must uh, persevere together. You designed the church to be a body functioning together. When some are weak, others are strong. And we need that, Lord. So I pray we take seriously also this call to unity. And we, as, as the days grow on, we only get closer to the church. This local church, the church universal, that we draw nearer to your bride. For we need it to serve you. And Lord, we need it also to be fearless. Satan is still the, the ruler of this world in a sense. Although defeated on the cross, we await Christ to come and, and to, to, to make an end of all evil. For the time being, Lord, we still have great enemies of our soul. Sin, Satan, the flesh itself. Yet we must face these, Lord, without fear, not shrinking back from those who would oppose us. Remembering, Lord, that all who oppose us, they're really just opposing you. They're opposing our Lord. But we know you are greater. So we will get behind you and stand firm. Equip us and strengthen us. And may we strive to walk in a manner worthy of the king who died for us to call us into his everlasting kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for that. In your name we pray. Amen.